0: Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. In today's episode, we will continue our conversation with keynote speaker, author, workshop facilitator, adjunct professor, and thought leader, Leo Batari. We will look at the topic of why who you surround yourself with matters and why success is realized by those who enlist the support of others to help them do the things anyone can do that most of us never will. It is my pleasure to welcome Leo Batari back to the show. Leo, welcome back to the show. We are so thrilled to have you again.
1: Ah, and so great to be here. Appreciate it.
0: So in a few short weeks, your second book is going to be coming out, and it's called What Anyone Can Do, How Surrounding Yourself with the Right People Will Drive Change, Opportunity, and Personal Growth. It is your second book. Your first book came out in 2016, and it's The Power of Peers, Can you tell us a little bit about how what anyone can do is different than The Power of Peers?
1: Sure. The Power of Peers was really a study of how and why formal peer groups for business leaders are so effective. And what I did with this book after the Year of the Peer podcast and after doing a number of workshops and keynotes and really learning so much from podcast guests and audiences from all over the country This book, What Anyone Can Do, picks up where the power of peers kind of left off, if you will, because it's a study not just of our peers, but kind of all the people who surround us. We're not just surrounded by peers. We have, you know, parents and teachers and our kids and our mentees and mentors and all of that. There's a whole community, if you will, that, Mm -hmm. you know, we surround ourselves with. And we don't just engage with them in formal peer group settings. We engage with them You know, in our everyday lives. So I wanted to really look at that and really study that more deeply. So I just really felt, especially given all of the rich information I had received and how much I had learned from writing The Power of Peers, it seemed, you know, appropriate to kind of just write the second one. So I was really happy to do that.
0: That's great. So it sounds like we wouldn't have your second book if we didn't have your podcast, The Year of the Peer. And I had the fine privilege of appearing on it a year ago. And that's how we first met. And I'm sure our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about Year of the Peer. And obviously, the lessons you took out of it are in large part in your book. If there's anything else you'd like to share about what that experience taught you in terms of lessons we can learn from people, as well as how you sort of position where you are taking your work today, that would be great.
1: Yeah, I think the idea of the year of the peer, especially after the 2016 presidential election, after looking at data at the time from the uh, most recent Edelman Trust Barometer, Edelman does this incredible study they've been doing since 2001 across 28 countries around the world. It's not a study of peers, but it's a study of trust. And what they were showing at the time was that, you know, trust in institutions was really low and they study it in terms of public trust in government, business, media, and NGOs and non-governmental organizations. And one of the things we know is that the less that we trust our institutions, the more we tend to look to one another for support. And we've been doing that for a long time. We do it whether it's Amazon book reviews or, you know, People wanting to know if they're going to buy a car, for example, not just what the magazines say about it or what the company says about it. They want to know what people like them who've driven the vehicle <laughs> think. Right. It, you know? Right. So again, the less we trust these institutions, the more we look to one another. Obviously, I thought we came off of and you know a very divisive presidential election. We have a very bifurcated media. We've got you know a situation where people can turn on whatever news seems to align with their worldview. We are mm-hmm. listening and learning less and we are arguing and judging more. And I thought the Year of the Peer would be like a really neat opportunity to get very successful people from many different walks of life into conversations that talked about the importance of Enlisting the help of others, collaborating, mm-hmm. working with others, and it really started to expand that conversation to what what anyone can do is all about. And of course, one of the interesting things is, and you know yourself included, all the incredibly successful people we had, not one of you said, "Oh, I did this completely by myself." Right, <laughs> but right. It, it, it was kind of preposterous. You know, they would laugh. And in, in most <laughs> cases, when you all were asked to talk about some of the people who really made a difference in your life, you know, most of you or almost all of you said, "Okay, well, I'm going to name some people, but I." I know I'm going to forget a whole bunch of people. Right, I don't want right. people to be because really, and these can be people who are in our lives every day. These could be people we met on an airplane for an hour and a half who came for right. our life for a very brief period of time. We learned something from them that may have been even transformational. I think all of these stories and this idea of realizing for Anybody in the audience who's sitting and listening to people like Jim Kuzis or Rich Kalgard or J.J. Ramberg or uh, someone or you that you know you all didn't do it alone, and your stories and a lot of the experiences of our audience members are really very well aligned. And and we'll get into it when we talk about what anyone can do. But in many cases, there's a difference between those people who are really successful and those who may not be as successful. And it has little to do with superhuman gifts that you all have that, that we don't, okay? Right. So that's in many respects what anyone can do it was all about. So
0: what was your finding when you were talking to folks? I mean, obviously I was one of your guests and it was, I took so much away from that limited time we had together. You were, as I mentioned to you, before we started our conversation that you inspired me to develop my own podcast. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate it because it's been a very transformative experience for me. And I know from reading through your manuscript and our conversations that your guests throughout the year during Year of the Peer shared a lot of insights with you about the folks they've met along the way. And as you said, sometimes they're people in our everyday lives and sometimes they're people we meet for a very finite period of time. Were there any sort of interesting takeaways that you had? I know that we've just talked about about a few of them. and Obviously, it led to what anyone can do. Are there any interesting takeaways that you took from those conversations?
1: I think a couple of things. Um, one is I think every guest that I had would tell you that there is an opportunity to learn from every single person we meet and to always be open to that opportunity to learn. Never think we just dismiss others no matter what walk of life or whatever you think. We can learn from everybody. And there are people that have just amazing stories. And that was a a very prevailing piece of it. But also, I think, again, I think what came through that inspired the title of the book, What Anyone Can Do, is the fact that When you think about all of these very successful people. They can't leap tall buildings in a single bound. They can't do things that no one else can do. What they do is do the things anyone can do, but most of us never will. And that actually comes from a book that was written in 1976. I had read this a long, long time ago. It was written by Joe Henderson, who wrote for Runner's World for um, over 30 years and pretty incredible guy. When he was talking about running or just life in general, he basically said that. He said, you look at people who are really successful and really happy. He said, it's not because these people are just capable of so much more. He said, but they go about, they set a goal for themselves and they do those little things every day that make a difference. And I think he writes about marathon running a lot. And I think it's a really good metaphor because when you think about preparing for a marathon, depending on the program you might look at, it may be 18 to 24 weeks ballpark in order to prepare to run 26.2 miles, which is not a small thing. What happens Mm -hmm. though, is if you do just whatever the workout is, you know, each and every day. That's what prepares you to be able to run 26.2 miles at the end. The people who show up to that race didn't just jump out of the, you know, their sofa and decide they were going to run the race that day. They, they earned the right to do that, right? Because they had the daily discipline to get up and do their workout, even when they didn't feel like it. And when you also think about the number of people who had some kind of a buddy you know, somewhere along the road, some either a training partner, or they were part of like a team and training type organization, or they would enlist even in some way, even if it was someone long distance, you know, I I used to run Mm -hmm. in a lot of these races. And I trained by myself, but I had a buddy of mine who I was living in Florida, he was living in Massachusetts, we talked to each other every day, how'd you run go today? What you know, what did you learn? What did you do? What Mm -hmm. are some of the challenges you're having? And we were always checking in with each other to Make sure that we were on track and doing what we were supposed to do each and every day. And I think whether you are trying to run a marathon, you're trying to learn a language, you're trying to get better at whatever it is you want to be better at. You want to lose five pounds. I don't care what it is. When you think about, let's face it, how many people, and there's a lot of them, will declare a New Year's resolution. And according to University of Scranton, 92% of people fail at those New Year's resolutions. I think we should really take note of the fact that most of the people who set out a goal and vocalize a New Year's resolution, they're not trying to make the Olympics in six months. You know, they're trying to do something typically pretty realistic and something that they actually want for themselves. And yet the failure rate is really high. And oftentimes the reason it's high is because left to our own devices, we'll get off to a really great start. And two or three weeks down the road, we're rationalizing, well, yeah, I'm not getting up and doing that anymore. I got this distracting me, or this happened that I didn't realize was going to enter my life now. So I can't spend 10 minutes or 15 minutes every morning doing what I was supposed to do. you know. So what anyone can do just really talks about the fact that if we actually enlist the support of others, they can help us do the things anyone can do far more often.
0: So why is it so difficult though, do you think? And I agree with you and it's interesting. I did one of my first podcasts for Paradigm Shift was about New Year's resolutions and the the reason why there's a failure rate and what we can do to try to really realize our goals. Why do you think
1: it's so tough to ask others for help? Well, first of all, we don't, I guess I'll look at it in two ways. One is when we don't ask for help, we are so willing to just cut ourselves a break, right? We just, we just, you know. That's true. No one holds us accountable, right? And I think sometimes when we don't enlist the support of others, you know, I think in large part it's because we're trying to avoid that pressure of being accountability, right? If I declare it, actually, if I actually make it public, with people that this is really what I want to do then oh no now I'm actually going to have to do it and so it's a little right, scary. Right, exactly. But I think in the end, you're serious about achieving a goal. And again, it doesn't have to be anything huge. And I mean, by the way, even if you're looking to create a huge goal, you need to really be thinking about it in terms of, you know, in small bits, right? It's like the elephant one bite at a time. Right. It's not you, you, it's not looking at some big thing and hoping that, that I'm just going to go from here to there because God, that seems awfully far. One of the... Um, stories that i talk about in the book was a story of having my daughters who wanted to climb their first mountain peak and they were all they did what they Mm -hmm. were supposed to do ahead of time they were all prepared and they show up if you've ever done that before and this at the time was a peak it was well over twelve thousand feet it was not easy but they're hour and a half into the hike and they're looking at each other and they're about whatever midway up the mountain of course they're looking at the peak and it looks awfully far away and, and they um, yeah, they're looking at it like, hey, dad, I think the view's pretty good from here, you know? Or <laughs> we had talked about, you know, the prospect of weather and how you have to make sure that, you know, you're not on top of a big rock if a thunderstorm comes through. So you pay attention to all that. And there was this like white, right. tiny puff of cloud. And my other daughter is like, hey, dad, is that weather coming in? And we need to be concerned, you know, any excuse to try to get off the mountain because they were done. But That's funny. I think it just became emotionally and physically exhausting after a while. It's kind of interesting what can happen when you reframe your circumstances a little bit. They got to a point where they were just done. And I said, look, I know this was something you really wanted to do. I said, do me a favor. I said, let's climb for 10 more minutes and see what you think. But I said, before we leave, let's mark kind of where we are. So there was this like, pretty good-sized bush where we were, right? So I said, okay, we'll continue the hike. So we go up another 10 more minutes. You know, they're looking at their watches and by the second 10 minutes. All right, <laughs> I think we're done now. And they look at the peak and they say, see, it's no closer than when we left 10 minutes ago. And I said, look the other way. And they looked down at that bush and it was like a tiny dot. They could, absolutely could not believe how much progress they made. And once they discovered that, wow! it absolutely inspired them to, they went right to the top that day. What is really cool about that is that has been something that for both of them, every time they run into tough situations every time they realize that the pursuit of a goal may involve you know more time and more effort and some emotional exhaustion that they celebrate those small wins they mark their progress they don't simply focus on that goal as something that always appears so distant so i think with three of us doing that together we can help one another reframe things like that so that we can Approach achieving something even like climbing to the top of a mountain and and actually be successful at it And by the way, there's nothing like the view from the summit and they realize that and you also realize how powerful that is And how important it is that we actually complete our goal and not just get 70 percent of the way there
0: Well, I love that story for a whole host of reasons and I really what I really love is how you you know Looking at the peak is formidable and you can continue To work towards it and not really see much of a difference But it's when you look at it within the context of where you came from from, and I think that that's really, really powerful. Well,
1: it, it is, It's it is really interesting. There, you know, there's another. Um, you know, Kristen was running a half marathon years later, and. Uh, she got to about the 11 mile mark and was really starting to feel the exhaustion of it and was saying, you know, cause I was kind of following her along the race. And although at the time I was kind of loath to give advice, you know, with an exhausted daughter who's just wants to get this thing over with, but she had said to me that she's starting to walk around. And what she said was that, you know, she, I'm running till I can't run anymore. And then I'll walk for a little while and then I run until I can't run anymore. And I said, all right, let me give you just one thought. <laughs> and and, uh, what I said to her was don't run until you can't run anymore and then start running again. Because what happens is this is like a series of repeated failures. I said, what you want to do is pick a spot, run to it, declare victory, get to a place where now you feel like running again, pick another spot, run to it, declare victory. I said, those two miles are going to buy so much more quickly and you're going to feel so much better at the end. And actually she did do it. And she said, wow, was that a big difference? Just the whole mental exercise of being able to declare victory instead of constantly succumb to the exhaustion of feeling like I can't go any." farther here. So I think this kind of reframing and how we can help one another do that can, can help us achieve big goals.
0: That's incredibly powerful. Thank you for sharing that story. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, for me, I've been through a very significant transition the past few weeks, and I will definitely take your advice. And I, I think the phenomenon of taking a goal and breaking it into smaller pieces and declaring victory along the way is incredibly powerful because it completely changes your mentality about trying to achieve your goal, especially when it's one that's a bit more tough to sure. accomplish. Oh, no
1: question about
0: it. So let's shift to a more vulnerable. Place for a couple of minutes. Um, in your book, you share several personal stories, which um, some would certainly describe as maybe not being among your finer moments. What made you decide to be vulnerable, and do you care to share that with your with our um, with our listeners here?
1: Oh, of course. Well, one of the things that the book basically challenges the readers to do is to be vulnerable. So I don't know how I could get away with not doing it. So I think that that was an important part of that. And to show that how helpful that can really be. So in addition to the one story that I actually talked with you about in our last podcast about when I dropped the baton. Right. And, you know, in the uh, junior high school relay race that cost our team an undefeated season and what I learned from that. You know, I also tell the story of um, uh, when I was running my own agency. And how so much of it was very successful and so much of it looked great from the outside. But I had some real blind spots and weaknesses as well, uh, both mm-hmm. in the operations and finance area. And I ended up being fortunate enough to sell the firm. But quite frankly, had I got involved in a peer group or sought out some of the help that you know I really could have used at the time, a company would have been worth a lot more money if I decided to sell it, or maybe it would be still in business today. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I wanted to share that this isn't something that I've always practiced or done. It's something I've learned, just like everyone else, when you make mistakes. And Seku Andrews, who, as you know, is quoted throughout the book. He's an incredible poetic voice. uh, Basically, Mm -hmm. talks in terms of you win some and you learn some. So I wanted to just talk about some of those things in terms of how we look at moments like that, where they are Arguably failures, but they are learning moments, and that's what takes that moment from being a failure to being something that actually can serve as a jumping off point to something better. I wanted to talk about that and tell stories like that so that I think it helps the readers really kind of you know identify we all have our own struggles, we've all made our mistakes, we've all done these things, and to kind of that's where we can cut ourselves a break. That's when we can say it's okay that we did that as long as we own it and we learn something from it and we do better next time.
0: That's great. And you mentioned Seiko Andrews and, you know, clearly he has a very prominent role in sort of the way you weave your story together in your latest book. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about him and why you decided to have him figure so prominently in the story you were telling?
1: So Seiko. Is someone who, when I was back at Vistage, and for a while, I was basically looking at um, um, hiring speakers. The woman who was helping me do that, her name was Kathy Foreman, had known of Sekou Andrews, and I had really not heard of him. He and I talked, and then he prepared a presentation for Vistage that we were going to have him deliver at our executive summits back then. And I was knocked out by not only the ability... This is much more than someone who has the ability to turn a phrase. This is someone who has the ability to really communicate deep and powerful messages to people that really... Can I think inspire and empower an audience to to move forward? And he's a remarkable uh, guy. So there were things he was a he was a guest on my podcast. He was also provided um, you know some great stories and some great information. But one of the quotes that I actually use at the front of the book is he says, "There's an incredible power that comes from surrounding yourself with communities in which you feel small among them, and they look at you like a giant." You, know, you just wow, think about I love that, that, right? What what that's like, and everything that that sentence communicates. And there's so much of what he does. In, and of course, in the, at the end of the book, there's a piece that he shares, which is essentially an exp- excerpt of what he had prepared for the Vistage groups at a time, that when you read through it, you just get a sense of how you know, amazing you know, he is, how he sees the world, how he thinks about things, and how it can kind of reframe our lives for us, right? Just like I talked about with the mountain example or the marathon example. I think most of what Sekou, uh talks about, you know, in his story, he said, you know, oftentimes we're so excited to have uh, a room with a view, and he says we typically just have a view of a room. Wow! <laughs> so very interesting, you know. But but again, as you as you read it in context and you look at it, and and by the way, I would highly encourage. Um, it's one thing to read the words. And even in the Mm -hmm. book, I say, all right, words are powerful and they're great. Go find the the podcast, go to YouTube, go whatever, listen to how these words are delivered. And it adds a whole other layer of, um, you know, of, of just power to the whole experience. So he's, um, he's pretty extraordinary and, uh, I was just very happy to get his, uh, cooperation to, Uh, be and you know, in many ways, uh, he's, he's kind of just sprinkled here and there, you know, in the book, and yet it's a powerful presence.
0: That's amazing. I can't wait to read the book. Leo, I am so sad to say that our time together is is up. It has been such an amazing conversation and I wish that we could sit here all day and continue huh. our chat and I'll, I'll, I'll definitely have you back again soon. Um, is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners before we sign off and can you let us know how we can find you?
1: Sure. Uh, well, you can find me at L E O B O T T A R Y L-E-O-B-O-T-T-A-R-Y.com, where you can learn more about what anyone can do, uh, the book and comes out September 3rd. If you'd like to pre-order it, we would love for you to do that. And also you can learn more about our podcast. We have the, what anyone can do uh, podcast, which really picks up with the year of the peer, uh, left off where again, we just have some really terrific guests who are sharing their story. And each week we talk about a different category. It could be accountability. It could be curiosity, uh, you know, um, J- James Orsini, for example, from Vana Media, we literally just talked about humans <laughs> and, and, wow. uh, you know, in, in the world of work and what that's going to look like, not only today, but, uh, in the future. And, uh, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so please come, uh, come visit me there.
0: Leo, thank you again so much. I have really enjoyed our time together and look forward
1: to chatting with you again soon. Oh, me too. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. I hope that you've enjoyed our discussion with Leo Batari on peer mentoring and peer influence. We hope that you will join us next week. I am your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradimeshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.